What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Welcome, everyone. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. I have the pleasure of bringing you an amazing guest today, a guy that I've actually crisscrossed paths with a, a number of times over the years. Uh, you may recognize him. His name is Jeff Dotchis, and he is the founder and CEO of OneDrop. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Aaron. Really uh, grateful to, to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm grateful to have you here. And it, it is funny because uh, we'll get into this as we go through our talk track. Uh, but you have had quite an amazing experience and I'd like to start with our guests and, and giving them a little bit of their just due. And we, we've have had some truly amazing guests on here. But uh, I do want to go back to 1994. I know you did some things before then, but uh, five short years after this thing called the World Wide Web was created by Tim Berners-Lee, you founded this company called Razorfish with uh, Craig Canaric. I'm probably saying his name wrong. Canaric, yep. You went on to become the chairman, CEO, and president of this world's largest leading global digital marketing solutions company. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, it's still around, it's still a, a big deal. Uh, you created this legacy. So why was that so successful? And how did you know back then, you know, to create something like that when the web was so nascent? I don't, I don't think we knew much of anything, really. We were kind of young and lucky and in, in the right spot, but also you know, you could sense that there was some sort of very powerful convergence about to occur in terms of digital and its transformation of a variety of different industries. If you looked at the um, sort of the ideation, production and distribution and monetization of different forms of media and even in business, uh, um, a lot of that effort was really siloed into very... Um, fragmented vertical um, capability sets. So if I'm going to make a magazine, I'm going to, you know, have a group of people, I'm going to have a photographer, and then I'm going to have, you know, somebody write copy, and then they're going to paste it together into a thing. And then I'm going to have to send that to the printing press. And then the printing press is going to print them and put it on trucks. And then the trucks are going to take it to to a magazine stand or, or deliver to people's houses. And then somebody else is going to sell ads on that thing. And the production you know, uh, distribution monetization of those ideas for that magazine really were fragmented among a whole bunch of different sort of things. And as digital started to um, inter disintermediate, almost all of the friction in the production, distribution, and monetization of ideas you started to see that that was happening because of digital and you could kind of smell it. Now, if you were in a business, of course, some businesses didn't see it and it took a long time, but other businesses like financial services in particular, media and entertainment as another one, commerce as another one, um, very quickly um, began to adopt digital to make a more frictionless, consumer-friendly, efficient, more cost-effective way of doing business. And so, you could kind of smell that happening in 92 and 93. And then by the time Craig and I bumped into each other and he showed me the World Wide Web for the first time, you know, there probably weren't even, a, even I want to say not even a thousand web presences anywhere, you know, in the world, um, spe specifically no corporate web, web services, web, web presences. Um, 
we immediately saw that, that this was going to be a thing and that we should help these businesses get online. Well, it's crazy to think how far we've come. And so, you know, kudos to you. And I think people will get a sense of, you know, what a trendsetter you are as we go through your history, if they don't know that already. Related to that, so after leaving Razorfish, you created a company called Bond Art and Science. I, I don't want to yada yada over that, but I do want to get to the things that I think people will be most interested in, myself being one of those. In 2008, you created a group called the Dutchess Group. I think people can figure out where that name came from. You moved to Austin. This is where you and I first met. But what was really intriguing is you went to this next level. So if digital was first, uh, you had this thing called social business. And I think the goal was really to help people meaningfully adopt social community into their business and actually make money out of it. Maybe I'm off base, but let's talk a little bit about what the impetus was for creating the Dutchess Group. And you obviously had some really smart, uh, big brains that you brought into the fold early days. We did. Well, th thanks. Yeah. Um, I think the impetus behind Dotchess Group was the idea that um, these social technologies were emerging, one. Um, and two, um, we thought that you could create a lot of value in a business if each of the business's constituents were, be were able to be able to uh, engage in a meaningful dialogue with the business, as opposed to the business making something and trying to sell it. If you could get your employees, your partners and vendors and suppliers, your shareholders, your um, customers um, engaged in a dialogue with the business, that those interactions, these dynamic signals, we called them, um, would, would generate a lot of value for the business because one, you could get those constituents to amplify and become advocates for the business and thereby bring an authenticity and a, a meaningful sense of advocacy for product services, the business, the brand, the shares, all of those things um, amplifying and creating a much more um, dynamic and truthful you know, business environment. And then two, that if you analyze those signals, if you analyze the data from all of those signals, that in fact you could mine significant insights from how to do your business better and how to engage in those relationships in dialogue form, not monologue, but in a dialogue form better. And so really the concept behind social business was, was taking you know, these constituents, um, connecting them, turning them into amplification and advocacy tools, and then measuring the signals and determining how to create more value in your business because of that. Well, it's interesting because it seems like a fairly logical and straightforward premise now, but 2008, a lot less logical than you might think, especially since, you know, to your point, Jeff, Facebook had really just come out from a, everyone could belong where before it was for college students, Twitter was a thing. And, you know, it was a little bit like pulling teeth with a lot of businesses early days. I, I do want to digress a little bit because it's been an interesting phenomenon. Then we'll get into the piece that I think a lot of people want to hear about, which is the one drop piece. Um, let's reminisce a little bit about Austin. So 2008 was early days. I think when we moved there, you from New York, me from Boston, a lot of people felt like, oh, Austin's changed so much. Well, fast forward to 2021. If you've not been to Austin a few years, Austin has really changed. We have a lot of major companies like Oracle and uh, Tesla that are relocating their headquarters there. 
what were your first sort of, you know, feelings, moments of, of getting there and experiencing the, the city that was such a different feel from the big city or even San Francisco? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, gosh, I love Austin so much. My wife went to UT um, undergrad. And so, you know, she had a sort of a long history there from back in the day when Austin was still kind of the weird, keep it weird, you know, energy um, uh, back. Uh, what's the, what's the word, word I'm looking for? A, quiet, a quieter, sleepier town um, with some great, great music and good barbecue and great people and a good energy and, and UT in the capital, really, you know. And uh, we moved in 2005. We bought a house down there in 2005 and um, decided to raise our kids there. And it really is an idyllic sort of beautiful, beautiful place. And it had a great tech community and it had, um, you know, some, some just great companies there. So for us, it was a, a good move. You know, 9-11 had happened in New York City. And um, when we decided to start our family, you know, there was still kind of a dark, I don't want to say a dark energy, but a, a sense of, of sadness in New York that was still kind of present in the, in the early 2000s. And so we decided to, 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 to move to Austin. Um, subsequently, you know, great tacos and, you know, phenomenal, great people and a good energy there. And we, we put in 10 full years there. Um, and then for me, you know, it was time to kind of say, uh, I, I'm interested in, you know, in the energy of New York City again. Um, and fortunately, my wife, Jill, was, was willing to do it again. <laughs> Well, and it's it's interesting. In some ways, you sort of don't know what you are missing until you leave it, right? And I know that while well, I always have a place in my heart for Boston, I did love Austin, but I missed the big city, and so now I'm out in the Bay Area. So we've gone, you know, back to coast. Yep. Um, yep. It is interesting just how much it's evolved. But the other funny thing, and then we will move on to the one drop, is so many people knew Austin because of South by Southwest, or maybe through um, Austin City Limits, which is not only a TV show, but a huge music festival in October. And it was funny because, you know, the, the South by Southwest experience of Austin is so different than the day-to-day, -day, you know, more sleepiness of Austin. And again, that has changed and evolved since then. But um, it is just funny the lenses people view these things through. Yeah, you know, and and I, I, I love Austin. I have, I, we, you know, I have an office in Austin. You know, we have 40 people there. So, you know, it, it's... Um, near and dear to my heart. I try to get back as often as I can. COVID has, has very much, um, you know, kept us from that. But, um, you know, as soon as, as soon as we can, we'll be, we'll be back into, you know, getting to Austin mode. And then, you know, I think um, there's a lot of ways that the growth is good for Austin. You know, uh, it's good to, it's good to see that, that kind of growth there. I also know that there's a lot of folks that, that kind of harken back to that sleepier time um, when Austin was a little slower and a, a little weirder. Um, I think, I think it's good either way. And um, I'm, I'm proud to have been there for, for the time that we've been there. And, and I, again, still am deeply invested in that community and have, have a lot of, a lot of, uh, of the one drop team is there and, and um, only have the fondest of, of thoughts for Austin. Well, and that's good to hear. And I feel the same way. It was a little too warm for me and a little too small, but I, I have a lot of friends and it is a great place and um, like to visit whenever I can. So I do want to transition to the, the one drop, as we've mentioned a few times. So I'm going to give a little bit of the backstory. I'd love for you to fill it in. But in 2013, you were diagnosed with diabetes, right? And that's, I was, as I, I can only imagine, a huge shock to the system. 
but you did something positive with this, right? So as I did a little bit of exploration, you know, I think you give us your backstory that when you were diagnosed, first of all, you didn't really know where to turn. Uh, you realized that a lot of the current therapies and approaches focus more on managing the problem versus delivering solutions to prevent them, which I think all of healthcare wants to get to that model of, you know, health and wellness versus managing treatment after the fact. Uh, most companies, most people don't say, hey, you know, I'm going to solve this. I'm going to start a company. But given the fact that you've had some luck at doing that, uh, you created OneDrop. Let's start by talking about what is the company. So anyone not familiar with it, it's become a bit of a household name, but give a little bit more about what the how it works and what it does. OneDrop is a digital health platform. We utilize data science, continuous health sensing, and a telehealth user experience to bring programs, content, insights, information, one-on-one -on -one dedicated coaching, um, and logging and tracking of your biometric markers to um, everybody with a chronic condition um, the 8,759 hours a year that they're not at the doctor's office. And I think it's worth noting, you know, we sort of say we have a phrase that we use, um, you know, AI instead of RX. You know, we'd rather you make great choices to stay healthy rather than treat the symptoms of your sickness with drugs. And you may have to, at some point, enter into the healthcare system, but what we want you to do now is engage in a self-care system. We want you to engage in your own well-being. We want you to engage in the in the, in the choices that you can make to stay healthy. And because, you know, users or people with chronic conditions have been literally flying blind their entire lives around what they do and what happens to them when they do it. It's really remarkable when you, when, when one drop delivers a prediction and an insight about what's going to happen to you. And here's what you can do to avoid that problem before it happens. And that, like uh, the, 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 the shock and the awe of people when they're finally given information about their bodies that they can make choices on in real time versus, you know, getting off course six, eight months or a year until they get to the doctor and then finding out that they have to course correct in such a major way, you know, is really hard to do. And so when you see people, you know, doing so well, um, making small choices each and every day to change their behavior, to get to stay on track and stay healthy, um, you really get excited. And so really, you know, that's what we're doing at OneDrop. We're helping people uh, stay healthy by engaging in their own self-interest. Well, thank you for doing that. And, you know, that's a good explanation. And I think not to say it's a good thing, but I know one of the things with diabetes is that there are leading indicators, right? People get hypertension and or pre-diabetes a lot of times before they get diabetes, diagnosed with diabetes. And so I'm sure that if you look early enough, even all the way to making sure you're doing healthy weight loss and staying at the right weight, all those things can help contribute to it. I do want to get into this last year has been an unprecedented year. We don't have to say that. We should probably stop saying that, right? Just like you're still on mute on Zoom. Um, COVID hit. It's. I just found out today that today is the one-year anniversary of the first U.S. patient being di or, uh, you know, diagnosed, which is crazy to think about. But <clears throat> one of the good and bad things, I think, for your business is the fact that uh, one of the comorbidities most dramatically impacted by COVID is diabetes. Um, I will share some positive news, which is you took a C round last year from Bayer. I think 
somewhere around $100 million, you know, with the complete package. That's a good sign in the midst of a pandemic that someone's giving you a tremendously large amount of money. But tell us a little bit about, you know, what has the impact been, the good, the bad, and the ugly, obviously the good, you know, being you're helping people. Um, people are funding you to do more helping people and keep them healthy. But tell us a little more about that. So the pandemic really brought a concept into focus that I think had been sitting in the on the shelves of the innovation departments of the healthcare companies that exist today. And that's the idea that, you know, telehealth can bring um, efficiency and effective care to people where they're at when they're when they're in need of it. And um, I, I just think it got brought right to the forefront when all of these companies who operate in the healthcare space um, really were left kind of, hey, what do we do when we can't see people? And they quickly adapted. And now you start to realize that telehealth is going to be the major driver of um, transformation in you know, healthcare more broadly. And if I go back to my razorfish days, you know, we were thinking about how digital was going to transform all of these businesses. And yet here we are 25 years later and healthcare is the last industry on the planet to engage in any meaningful sense of digital transformation. None whatsoever, nowhere, whether it's EHR and you're using Epic or whether it's all of the faxing that goes on still between doctor's offices to, 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 to share records, the lack of personal ownership and accountability over my own health and my own health records, the um, $3.1 trillion a year that's spent on chronic care with zero improvement in the lives of people with diabetes as an example over the last two decades, it's gotten worse. You know, right now, the you know, the COVID pandemic really brought into focus the huge and glaring inefficiencies that the healthcare industry has been doing to society by, my insurance premiums went up 19% this year and 14% last year and 13% the year before and 20% the year before that. And are any of my people at my company getting healthier because of that? No, they're not. Why? And I'm going to drop because there's no incentive in the sick care system to keep people healthy. There's only an incentive to, to sell more services, to sell more drugs, to do more fee-for-service stuff, and to continue to extract premiums from employers and, 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 and pay out increasingly higher costs because insurance companies only make profit on the 20% that they don't spend on, on care. And so the only way to grow the pie is to increase the, the amount of pie. And so my point in all that is that the pandemic, you know, just shined a bright light on all that stuff. And right now we're at a point in time when telehealth and digital health and data-driven self-care can start to emerge into the light as the primary driver of health, convenience, efficiency, and efficacy in chronic care. Well, thank you for sharing that unvarnished uh, opinion. And I think, you know, a lot of it is fair that there's a lot that's still broken. I will say just to take maybe a glass half full uh, approach and we just did our digital health summit recently at JP Morgan. I think there are a lot of companies that are helping to fix, but they have not reached the scale yet that they need to. And 
to your point, yes, the, the pandemic is helping them. And then you have deals that I think a lot of people get excited about with Lavongo going to Teladoc for $16.5 billion, where it was one of the first really big, truly needle-moving moments of, oh, okay, this telehealth stuff is serious. People are p- placing a premium on it, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And I do know, like with a lot of the companies we work with, there is a thirst for this. It is hard, though, because you know, with HIPAA and FDA and all that involvement, and to your point, like the, the payers... It is a it's a convoluted system, and there are a lot of you know bad actors that have not necessarily helped the cause. I do want to pivot to something probably a little more positive. And you've started down this path already, but um, you are a trend spotter. You've been you know in now your third industry where you're really doing things that are moving the needle. Uh, I always like to pe- ask people that have this sort of ability, you know, in the digital health or the you know telemar- uh, telehealth side, like what do you see? coming over the next few years? Like what are some of the trends? And I know that's a bigger than a bread box, but you know, beyond some of the things we just talked about, what are you excited about seeing over the next five years? Well, without risking talking my own book too much, you know, I think data driven individual control over the biometric, you know, information that my body generates and then learning from that and then making choices about that and then staying healthy from that is really going to be the trend that you're starting to see. So rather than rely on this retrospective, reactive, you know, go get my labs and, you know, look what happened to me six months ago, um, I get to make choices in real time with real time health sensing, real time data and analytics and insights and a convenient, easy to use telehealth experience that is available for everybody on the planet. And that concept in some form, in some shape, I think is where this is all going. I don't think incremental improvement in nurses' workflow or the ability to extract more value from CPT codes in a given you know, category is really what we should be doing to improve people's health. It, it really is going to be about empowering people with the right data and information so that they can make healthy choices. And that's where health lives. It lives in the choices that I make every day. It doesn't live where somebody's trying to fix me after I've already made, you know, some, some, some choices that got me unhealthy. It lives, you know, in the places where I can make choices each and every day to stay healthy. And um, I think you're going to just see a ton more of that. You see Peloton, you know, bringing together hardware, the exercise bikes have been around a long time, right? But nothing has captured the zeitgeist like Peloton, right? Great job. Why? Because they're bringing hardware, they're bringing software, and they're bringing a service and a motivational sort of experience that's getting people excited about getting on that bike or on that treadmill or in that yoga class or whatever. You see Apple Fitness, right? Boom. Getting people excited about engaging in their health and getting the information that they need to know that they're making progress and making good choices. You can go on and on and on. Fitbit and Google, but you know, tons of that stuff are going to start, are all going to start to come together to make a digital health picture that really starts to revolutionize our industry the way 25 years ago, um, we began to revolutionize every other industry. Yeah, and it does bring everything full circle, right? So if you look at digital and how we're communicating with people, you know, things like native advertising and social, you know, paid social and really reaching people where they are and the way they wanna be reached, uh, I think healthcare, you're right, is starting to go on to that transformation. And it really is creating 
a proactive, positive, easy to manage experience where it's somewhat frictionless. And obviously with the pandemic, all of us have learned to spend way too much time on this thing called Zoom. And we've learned about, you know, our Fitbits and, you know, how we can track our 10,000 steps every day. So um, I appreciate that perspective. And so I do want to close out with two last questions, a little bit lighter. And, um, you know, you've already talked to maybe one potential for this, but I like to ask my guests, if you had one wish, any wish, don't worry about how it happens, uh, which would you pick and why? I had one wish. Yes. I'd ask for three more wishes. So you're the first person <laughs> out of about 50 people that I've asked that have used that trick, Jeff. So I actually very much appreciate that. So I guess out of those three new wishes, knowing that you could keep going uh, ad infinitum, anything in particular <laughs> you'd love to see either personally or for society that you would choose with that one of your bevy of wishes? You know, what I'd like to see is a society that is operating with um, a sense of humility, a deep sense of gratitude and um, empathy and kindness for each other. You know, I think there's been a lot of um, polarization that has driven people to create these others. There's all these others, right? And um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to create an environment where, where people can get together and, and be kind and thoughtful and, and love each other. And, and so what I would wish for society is, is a place where everybody gets a, a huge dose of, of humility that ends up in, in gratitude and empathy for everybody else. And with that, then I think we can do some amazing things. Uh, I, I'm, I'm super hopeful for, for our society and for humanity and for the world, because I still think, you know, the best is yet to come. I agree. And I, I like that a lot. And, and it's been a little bit of a theme with some of my last few guests who all are very smart, empathetic, and, you know, um, very much wanting to see healing. And it is interesting because we're doing this the day after the inauguration, you'll listen to it a little bit later, but, you know, people calling Biden the healer in chief, and I know he's not everyone's flavor. And there are a lot of people that were disappointed, but I do genuinely feel like there's a commitment between him and, and Harris to, try to unite people, those that are willing to be united and bring things forward. And I also believe that the best is yet to come. And so there's a lot of good that can come out of the last year, the last four years, uh, last 16 years in terms of some of the divisiveness. With that, we'll end on a fun question. Um, that is, you're stranded on a deserted island. I guess that's not that fun, but <laughs> the, the, the muse here is fun. And so I like to ask folks, uh, if you could pick one album that you could take with you that you knew you had to listen to just that album, which would it be? Gosh, you know, there's so many great ones, um, but I'm, I'm just going to sort of come to the first one that comes to mind, which would be Led Zeppelin III. Um, got a little bit of Get Up and Go there. you got Tangerine. You've got, you know, uh, Immigrant Song. Um, you've got the Gallows Pole. There's just like a whole lot to unpack there, and it's, it's sort of a thick... Um, layered, you know, meaty album that I really enjoy. Well, I like that on a few different levels and I'll tell you why. First of all, I'm a big Led Zeppelin fan, even though I love all types of music. But you picked the album that was the one before the big album, right? So a lot of people know Led Zeppelin 4, particularly because of Stairway to Heaven. So 3 is kind of like Nirvana's Bleach or Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger, uh, you know, uh, Smashing Pumpkins Gish, right? So you picked the one that was kind of the essence of who they are, not that the other, the material wasn't great. So 
I love that choice. This is a great note to end on. Uh, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O, host of the What's Know podcast show. I've had the pleasure of having a very engaging, not surprisingly, conversation with friend and do-gooder, Jeff Dotchis, uh, founder and CEO of OneDrop. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you, Aaron. I really appreciate you having me on and uh, look forward to coming back. Yeah, of course. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.